Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain Editor in London. It's Thursday, the 22nd of September. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, Putin has announced plans to call up hundreds of thousands of Russian citizens and to stage illegal referendums in Ukraine in what appears to be a significant escalation of the conflict. This is not a bluff, and those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the prevailing winds can also blow in their direction. We'll discuss that and his threat of use of nuclear weapons. We also discuss Prime Minister Liz Truss and her foreign policy. Three years ago, Vladimir Putin said that Western liberalism was dead. Last year, President Xi argued that the West is declining. In April 2022, things look very different. What will that mean for Britain's relationship with Ukraine, the US and the wider world? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Anoush, welcome back to the New Statesman World Review. Thank you so much for making time and and being here to chat with us. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm glad that I wasn't so terrible last time that uh, I'm able to grace this podcast again with my presence. (laughs) I would would, argue with you and say that, no, you were great. But I've been told by my colleagues on the international team that sometimes when British people like put themselves down a little bit, it's it's not actually like... (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually being aggressively arrogant. (laughs) I don't need to jump in and be like, you were wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, you Um, you got it. (laughs) So we were were going to start with discussion of Liz Truss and her foreign policy. But unfortunately, Vladimir Vladimirovich has once again made a choice. So let's get into it. On Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced referendums or referenda that would, if successful, turn, at least in Russia's eyes, parts of Ukraine into Russia. Quote, We will support the decision which will be made by the majority of residents of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, Zaporizhia, and Kherson regions about their future, end quote, he said. He also announced mobilization or partial mobilization for his effort in Ukraine. 
sending flight prices skyrocketing as eligible men tried to make their way out of the country. And of course, he added a threatening flourish, saying he would use nuclear weapons to defend Russia's territorial integrity and freedom. Katie, what did you make of this? You said at the top there that it was an escalation, but but sort of let's 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 slow down. Why is this significant, and what were your first reactions? So I think Putin has had a really critical decision to make over the course of the last week since the beginning of the real push from Ukraine and these pretty stunning reversals that we've seen in northeastern Ukraine, it has been clear that Russia's offensive is flailing, I think, to put it diplomatically. Russia is losing the war in terms of its current resources, both troops, weaponry, strategy, tactics. There was a decision for Putin to make this week in terms of his response does he now understand, is information passed up to him, that the situation is is not sustainable? And would this be the shock that caused him to fundamentally reassess his approach to seek? You know, I don't think anyone was realistically expecting that this would then cause him to immediately convene peace talks and abandon his designs on Ukraine. But would this at least press him to reach some sort of strategic pause to, to hold the lines in place and, and buy time for what seems to be a real, there had previously been these kind of stealth mobilization efforts in Russia with, you know, prisoners being offered freedom in exchange for fighting in Ukraine, people who have previous record of service being offered huge bonuses to sign on. There have been efforts to, to generate more forces, but realistically, it will take months to bring any of those forces online. And it was thought that really Putin is probably looking in terms of the spring for a renewed offensive. So a long way of saying one option for him to take would have been to urgently try to de-escalate and and try to seek a strategic pause here. He has done the opposite. So he and his proxy forces in Ukraine have firstly called for referendums or referenda, if you prefer, in these four partially occupied regions of Ukraine, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. These will not be in any way free or fair or legal polls. These regions are also not fully controlled by Russian troops, or or in the cases of a couple of them, really even partially controlled. So this is a performance. It is theatre to hold these votes to declare, and we're already seeing polls on, on Russian news outlets saying that it's you know it's the will of at least 90% of people on each of these territories is to join with Russia. There is no question what the result will be. If Putin so chooses, he could choose, as he did with Crimea in 2014, to announce as soon as next week that these territories have been formally annexed to Russia, that they are now Russian territory. And that gives him the opportunity to then say, well, look, this is Russian territory, which is now being attacked. And this then brings into range all of the resources of the Russian Federation, including, and he was careful to allude non too subtly to this in his speech, the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons. Let me just jump in there, because I think there's sort of two components to this that we need to unpack. There's there's the, the referendums and the nuclear threat, and then there's the partial mobilization. So let's start with the first part. It sort of seemed to me that he was saying, we're going to call this territory Russia. And by the way, if you attack Russia, we will use nuclear weapons, which is to say, I'm going to claim this, I'm not actually going to win it. I'm going to claim this and then say that it's mine and I will use nuclear weapons against you if you try to take it. 
was that your read? And and did it sound to you how to put this? I, I'm so tired of trying to like read Putin's mind. And it's 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 such a poor use of all of our time and energy. But since it's about him, did it strike you as a bluff? The problem is a convincing bluff looks exactly like the real thing. So there is one way to see this, which is you know the explicit threat of nuclear weapons calling this territory. Ukraine is a way to credibly threaten, you know, don't mess with us, and particularly to put pressure on Ukraine's Western partners, as we've seen at various stages in this conflict, you know, to, to empower voices which are saying we should be really careful not to put Russia too far because it looks like they're serious. They're threatening the use of nuclear weapons. They're beginning a partial um, mobilization and they're strengthening the laws around mobilization. They are very serious here, so we should look quickly to de-escalate this situation. The problem is we have no way to know if it's a bluff until it's called. And we have every reason to believe that it is going to be called. Putin performatively declaring these territories part of Russia does not in any way make them part of Russia in the eyes of anyone else. Ukrainian troops are not going to stop fighting. Their Western partners are not going to stop supplying them with military weapons. So if Putin follows through on this, it looks like his bluff is going to be called and it is unclear what happens then. His behavior at every point previously has not been to go further, but it's a very dangerous game that he's playing. And he's also setting up real domestic risks for himself too. You know, I think this is also part of continuing an attempt to frame this conflict, as has been done in Russia, as a defensive, it's still not called a war, as a defensive military operation that has been forced on Russia reluctantly by the West. So this is continuing to build that narrative of it is Russia that is being forced to defend itself, to defend Russian speakers, to defend Russian territory. And so reluctantly, the the Russian Federation has had to take this action. But it is really unclear that there is a depth of support behind that narrative in Russia, particularly when it comes to then putting Russian troops, Russian lives, the future of, of your husband and sons and brothers on the line. So there is a real domestic risk to Putin in drawing in many more Russian citizens to this war and testing whether that depth of support for both this war and his leadership is truly there. Right. So I just wanted to underline this. I think for us, those of us watching this from outside, obviously the referendums and the nuclear threat, those are the big headlines. I imagine that if you're in Russia, the big news is the partial mobilization because all of a sudden your husband, your brother, your son, your uncle, he's getting called to go to a war that he had been told was not going to affect him, which is why we're seeing flights sold out, which is why we're seeing airline prices surging. Do you think that it will lead certain EU countries to perhaps rethink visa bans? Because if people are allowed to leave Russia on the most, I mean, this is not the moral case that I would make, but on the, on the, like a pure transactional sort of mindset, you would be taking from the war effort. If I was the mother of an 18-year-old Russian citizen in Russia now, I would be doing everything I could to get them out of the country. And I think the framing of this conflict so far in Russia has been this is limited down to the use of the language, the special military operation. And effectively, this won't affect you or your life. You can turn it down. You can go on with your with your day-to-day existence. This, this won't really affect you. Trust us, we've got it. 
announcing a partial mobilization and on the same day also tightening legislation around, for instance, rules for desertion, rules for refusing to serve during a military mobilization. These are all very ominous signals to people within Russia of a further mobilization could be coming. Because to be clear, this the, a partial mobilization will still not solve the fundamental problems in Ukraine. It is still the case that Putin has embarked on a war that he cannot win. It is still the case that even if they do manage to call up every single one of the 300,000 troops that they are specifying, and there are reasons to be extremely skeptical that that will be the case, that training, equipping, deploying these individuals, and then supplying them with morale and the will to fight it is a very, very, very tough task. There is no reason to believe that this will solve Putin's problems in Ukraine. So there is every reason to believe that therefore more may be coming, that the mobilization may expand. So Putin is now dismantling really everything that has worked for him over the last two decades in Russia, which is to show I can be trusted. I run a stable, disciplined economy. Your future is assured as long as I'm in power. I'm making relatively sound decisions on behalf of the country. You know, the economy is now being plunged into years, perhaps longer, decades of uncertainty. And now your son's brothers and husbands may have to fight in a war that nobody has chosen. So he's undoing a lot of what has worked for him over the last two decades. And he's really risking a repeat of some of the behavior we saw in the late Soviet period with the invasion of Afghanistan, embarking on a, a long, unwinnable and potentially quite unpopular war for ends that that it you know we are going to find out whether people truly believe in the propaganda but this is a real risk for Putin but that also makes it all of our risk and all of Ukraine's right. risk too well the US has been clear that it is not going to recognize the referendum results that it will not consider occupied Ukraine to be Russia and for more on the British response and what this will mean for the new prime minister we are going to turn to section 2 and bring in Anoush so the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, made her first phone call to a foreign leader in office to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, which many took as a strong sign that Britain's staunch support for Ukraine and Ukrainians would continue. But what other signs do we have as to how she might conduct her foreign policy? Anoush, so that we can make this sort of an elegant transition, I'll start with Ukraine. I know that there was some concern, I think probably less so in Britain than in Ukraine, that because Boris Johnson was such a supporter of their war effort and of the country and kept going back there, some might say for domestic political reasons as well. But, but you know, the, he was the, the only person the, escaping to Ukraine. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some perhaps worried that a new prime minister would mean less support for the country. But it does not it does not appear that that's the case. No, absolutely. And, you know, we should, although I mocked him there, we should sort of give him credit. He has been a, he had been a yep. staunch supporter of Ukraine. I think there are roads named after him now in, in Ukraine. So Liz Truss, you know, bear in mind, she's barely been prime minister. So much has happened in her premiership since she came into Downing Street. I mean, it's been a very strange time for her, but she has made it one of her main priorities, even in the few days that she's had to do any politics, because if we've had the Queen's death, she hasn't really been able to do anything political. She made it known that her first phone call as leader broke convention and she rang Zelensky and the second phone call was to Biden. Usually it would be ringing the US first. Promised to give Ukraine at least 2.3 billion in military aid. And, you know, as foreign secretary, to be fair to her, she was 
you know, a Russia hawk. She was very combative. She had a tough line on Russia. I think you might remember that she actually visited Moscow as it was amassing troops on the border of Ukraine and had that very icy exchange with Sergei Lavrov. And that was the first visit to Russia by a UK foreign secretary in more than four years. So she did make it priority even before she was running to be Tory leader. And now that she is prime minister, she's trying to carry on Johnson's legacy in terms of being a firm friend. So that's all been very clear from her premiership. But of course, there are other tensions down the line and she's on her first foreign visit as prime minister at the moment at the UN summit in New York, where she, you know, I think probably as we record, she's going to be sitting down with her first bilateral with Biden and that relationship looks a little bit more strained. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I wrote about this last week. Basically, on certain issues, there is a lot of overlap and a room and significant room for cooperation. Ukraine is obviously one, China and the Indo-Pacific that's another like really key U.S. areas of interest, the Biden administration will want to continue to cooperate with the Trust administration. The problem is that in some ways signaled that she is going to take a hard line on the EU and with respect to Brexit. And there's no getting around the fact that the Biden administration has been extremely clear. They do not want anything to jeopardize the Good Friday Agreement or the Northern Ireland Protocol. There will not be a trade deal if that happens. I mean, they've, they've basically said, oh, it would make having a trade deal very difficult, but like, it's not going to happen if they, if they do this. And also, if relations between Britain and the EU are strained more broadly, put it like this, Liz Truss said that with the United States, there's a special relationship, but not exclusive. I don't think anybody in the US is bothered by that, to be honest. Like, that's fine. But it, the same goes for the United States, which also has to work with the EU on Ukraine, on China, on all these other issues and not to abdicate responsibility as an American here, but I think to a large extent, how this relationship goes is up to her. If she chooses a path of greater tension, I guess I'll put it, with the EU, that will also lead to a more strained relationship with the White House. But that's sort of my read on it. What What is yours? Yeah, I think from Liz Truss's perspective, she's one of these conservatives here who has been a real advocate for a US-UK trade deal. That was supposed to be the great prize of Brexit to some Brexiteers, that we would have the freedom to strike this deal and we'd have sort of this free trade relationship with the US that would dwarf the trading relationship that we ever had with the EU. Obviously, I mean, most people who are of a more moderate perspective, kind of assumed that this trade deal was never actually going to happen. It's been pretty toxic in terms of the electorate. You know, you've had these stories about chlorinated chicken and hormone-fed beef and, you know, the idea that our food standards and our agricultural standards would would slip if we signed such a deal. And actually, there has been real concern from farmers in the UK about the deal that Liz Truss signed as Foreign Secretary with Australia. And I think that, that trade deal only puts about 0.08% to GDP in over 10 years time, very long term. So, you know, these these trade deals that she's already signed with Japan, Australia, New Zealand, they're sort of chicken feed or chlorinated chicken feed compared to the the US-UK trade deal that, that we were promised. So that was really important. And she admitted on the plane over to, to New York to reporters that this, you know, basically it's not, it's not happening. It's not happening in the medium term. They're not going to be discussing it. And I almost assume that this was a bit of a negotiating tactic from her because it sounds like a climb down, sounds like something that would really annoy some hardcore Brexiteers here and disappoint people who voted for Brexit as well. Obviously, you know, the electorate were, were promised this kind of free blossoming future for the UK in terms of its economy from this referendum. So, you know, 
you'd assume that would have been something quite difficult for her to admit. But I think it was probably to make room in this chat that they're going to have about the Northern Ireland protocol and how she wants to throw parts of that out because the threat from the Biden administration was, as you said, if you start throwing out parts of that protocol, then it won't be conducive to trade talks. If she says trade talks aren't really happening anyway, then that takes away some of the hand of the US, if you like, when they discuss this this very tricky area. I mean, Biden's sort of Irish heritage is very important to him. It's something that he's made known when he's been speaking about the UK before. I mean, he talks about his family history a lot, doesn't he? His ties to County Mayo. And I mean, I don't know whether that's that's political posturing from your end as well. No, no, no. I really do want to stress, though, because I think sometimes it's, well, he's Irish and that's why he cares about this so much, right? And like, yes, I'm sure that there are Irish Americans who follow the issue particularly closely, but this is really not just Biden. This is also Pelosi, the Trump administration had a similar line when Mick Mulvaney was sent over to be sort of the special envoy or like person on on Northern Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement is really seen because it was the Clinton administration seen as like a great achievement by Democrats. And it's also kind of one of the only things that the U.S. has done since the Cold War that was seen as like an unmitigated good. You know what I mean? There have been a lot of diplomatic like screw ups, frankly, but from the U.S. over the past, what, 30 years. This was not seen as one of them. Basically, every branch of government, both parties really care about this. The U.S. is not always like this on issues, but on this, I think they've actually been pretty consistent about what their policy is and what they want to see happen and not happen. I think I think you've hit on why it's such an easy thing for Biden to campaign on, because it is something that has almost unanimous support, doesn't it? It's not something that is particularly divisive. And so it's easy for him to, to champion it when he's having these high profile bilats with Liz Truss, for example. So that makes it even more difficult for her. I think the the she has the weaker negotiating hand. It's her legislation. The Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is her legislation that she introduced as foreign secretary. The right of the Conservative Party are counting on her to stick to her guns. And so she's in quite a tricky position. The European Commission has said that, you know, a move to put this bill through Parliament, which is currently going through Parliament, would breach international law. So, you know, it's 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 something that could affect the UK's reputation on the world stage, as well as being a sort of thorn in the side of this relationship with the US. And as well as that, you know, she, you're right that the relationship with the US is tied to uh, UK's relationship with Europe as well. I mean, sh- during the leadership campaign, she said that the jury was out on whether Emmanuel Macron was friend or foe. Some people in her party were absolutely horrified by that. She said she was joking, but they were quite surprised that she would sort of speak in those kind of terms about a very important ally of the UK. Of course, they've had their differences over the years, but it seemed sort of very undiplomatic considering you need French cooperation on energy security, on migrants crossing the channel in small boats to the UK, which is another running sore in terms of the UK's relationship with France. I think they didn't actually discuss it when they had their own meeting at this UN summit and didn't discuss the Northern Ireland Protocol either. So, you know, obviously trying to avoid the awkward topics, but if she continues riling France and the rest of the EU up like this, then that's not something that Biden's going to look kindly on either. And also the talk of of Westminster recently has been his tweet about how he's fed up with uh, hearing about trickle down economics. It doesn't work. You know, it's all about redistribution now. This runs totally counter to Liz Truss's sort of economic revolution here, where she's trying to throw out the orthodoxy of the Treasury and bring in tax cuts, the cap off of bankers' bonuses, cancel a rise in corporation tax. Basically, you know, all of these changes to the tax system that mean that the rich and corporations will end up with more money 
the idea being that if you grow the pie, then everyone gets a bigger slice, which is something that Biden was refuting in his tweet. And it's something that we haven't really seen work in the UK. Right. Well, so, so I mean, to be fair, right, because I sort of implied and indeed believe that, that basically what's happening with the Northern Ireland protocol is about domestic British politics. That tweet is 100% about domestic American politics. Yeah. It's about legislation that Biden's trying to pass. It's about the Democratic Party. It's about pushing back again, like after 40 years of Reaganite policy, and basically Republicans, you know, sort of shaping the terms of debate when we talk about economy. It had nothing to do with Liz Truss. But here in the world, in reality, <laughs> um, like these things are interconnected. And he, you know, sent it ahead of meeting with, with Liz yeah, Truss. Yeah, I know. And it's really ironic, isn't it? Because Truss is one of these people who... Ever since, you know, she first came into Parliament, she's been trying to style herself on Thatcher. You know, I was reading old profiles that we wrote about her in my in the old magazine that I used to work for back in, you know, 2012 to 2014. And even then, people around her and her supporters and her friends in Parliament were clearly briefing that she would be the next Thatcher. But she doesn't have her Reagan, does she? And she, she wants to introduce Reaganomics to the UK. But instead, she's got Biden to go and visit. And it is sort of ironic because... I do think that it means that the economic risk that she's taking in the UK is going to be even riskier when she doesn't have those big allies backing her from abroad. And I also just want to note that, like, in two years, if a Biden or a Democrat loses, Reagan's not coming. Like, you, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, that's not who you're going to get. <laughs> Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, that's another that's another political point behind the kind of reticence in the US about free trade, right? I mean, right. it's more of a protectionist picture now, America first, mm -hmm. which means that, you know, there's even less likelihood that you're going to get some kind of trade arrangement, even something smaller, more bitty than the US-UK trade deal that we were promised, means it's even less likely in terms of US domestic politics. I mean, you know far more about this than I do, that there would be appetite for that. Yeah, it's it's pretty far down on the list of it, it, it's always spoken about is like, we'll get to that one day, maybe. Katie, I want to bring you in here. And and obviously, as we talked about at the start, Liz Truss is known as quite a hawk on China. Tom Tugendhat is in her cabinet, who has strong ties here in Washington, DC, to the sort of policymaking community that has been sounding the alarm on China and the Indo-Pacific. What are your thoughts on, on where that particular relationship, like, let's say, that somehow these zany world leaders are able to avert crisis on the EU and their economic differences. What are the potential areas of cooperation and potential pitfalls on China? I think the first thing Liz Truss is going to have to do is just establish some basic credibility. I think the danger is that she is seen in both Moscow and Beijing as a bit of a lightweight and somebody who, therefore, they don't take particularly seriously. I'm struck by just... you. Know, the image of Liz Truss when she was in Moscow, I think being asked about whether she recognized Russia's sovereignty over two regions that were actually in, in Russia and her saying no. And that, that was sort of seen there as a, I mean, it was a, it was a blatant and quite chauvinist attempt to, to troll her and, and to show her off as somebody who was lacking foreign policy experience. But I think we shouldn't expect that she's going to have a much easier ride of it. I, I, I think in terms of, of, China's response and how Beijing will view this, I mean, they, they will always be interested to see, you know, for instance, is there a daylight between the US position um, and, and the UK? Is there daylight between now the UK and the EU that presents opportunities? But I think a little bit like saying, 
the UK will then be in a stronger position if it goes its own way and it will negotiate all these marvellous trade deals. The, the danger is that, that the UK then marginalises itself somewhat by doing that. I think the strength for the UK, both with, with, with China and looking towards Russia, is in being a leading voice within Europe. In, in being a, you know, a leading supporter in terms of military aid to Ukraine and showing that it can be a strong voice in terms of a rules-based international order and speaking up for, for liberal democracy. So I think it will be important for Liz Truss to articulate early that these are her values and that she's going to stick with them despite you know, the, the very real difficulties that are coming in, you know, in, in the weeks and months ahead. Yes, I think what you said at the end of your answer there, Katie, about trying to establish herself as a supporter of a rules-based system. I mean, obviously, (laughs) UK prime ministers in recent years have struggled with that. As I mentioned, you know, some view, including those in Europe, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill as if it passes a breach of international law because it would unilaterally rip up that bit of the treaty that, let's not forget, Boris Johnson did sign. Those things are a big deal to us here. I, I mean, I don't don't think they necessarily compare as dramatically to what, what China and Russia are doing, for example, if you're looking at it from an international perspective. But it, I do think it weakens Britain's reputation to an extent. And it also means that you do have a lot of internal division here because there are a lot of people on the Conservative side within Liz Truss's own party, particularly in the House of Lords, who who hate the idea that Britain would be trashing its reputation as a sort of trusted, liberal, democratic voice. So I think she's going to struggle if she is going to focus on pursuing that legislation. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> we will, and we will continue to watch it. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast. Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For now, we are going to move to a section that we stole from Anusha's podcast that we like to call You Ask, you us. ask us. Pretty good. That was, you know... So our question this week, uh, a listener wanted to know, what did you make of Biden's comments that the U.S. would defend Taiwan? So if you missed this, Biden gave an interview, a TV interview, in which he once again said, yes, the U.S. will, you know, will come to Taiwan's aid should should there be a need for that. If you have missed Katie's coverage, this has been a running non-gag uh, between Biden and the rest of his administration, where he says, yes, we're going to defend Taiwan, and then policymakers scrambled to be like, no, he didn't mean it like that. Katie, what did you, what did you make of it? Yeah. So this is the the fourth time that Biden has said, listen, you, some... hear, this, you hear the weariness in her voice. <laughs> Biden, stop doing this. Well, it's also, I really feel for our, our listeners and our readers of this is also not the first time that they've been subjected to this explanation. So I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can only blame Biden. Um, this is the fourth time that he has said, some variation of if Taiwan is attacked, the the U.S. military will defend it. Conventionally, the approach by successive U.S. presidents has been something called strategic ambiguity, which is not to commit in advance what the U.S. posture will be. So every time he has said this, there has been a, a chorus of outrage from Beijing and a chorus of, of concern from, from various commentators asking if he is now ditching this, this strategic ambiguity policy and declaring a new policy on Taiwan. And every time his aides have come out and said, no, no, he, he didn't mean it. He is not changing US policy. US policy is consistent and it is unchanged. I think the clear point to take on this is that it is confusing. It is the opposite of strategic clarity, which is what some people are now calling for. I think it can most diplomatically be described as a strategic model. Even his the form of words he has used is somewhat confusing. And I think of all the very fraught issues in the world currently, Taiwan is one where precise, clear language is very, very important. So I think there is an urgent need for the US to lay out clearly what its strategy is on Taiwan, such that its allies, for instance, the UK and its regional allies like South Korea and Japan are clear about what actions does the US intend to take and in what circumstances. So that is now an urgent priority. 
And I would just also say, I think we are seeing somewhat symptomatically of, of the discourse here in the US, the difficulty of answering this question in the current domestic political climate. Being tough on China has become equivalent to being strong on Taiwan. So it is very difficult to see that Biden could answer that question on national television here any way other than, yes, the US stands with Taiwan. So I think we're seeing some of these factors come come together here, but it is perpetuating quite a dangerous situation, which would really benefit from a very clear articulation of what US strategy is. And just the final point to say is that I think that this scenario that he keeps being asked about of would the US defend Taiwan if it was attacked is the wrong question to focus on. It is less if there was a D-Day landing style invasion of Taiwan. I think Beijing has already lightly factoring in that in that scenario, of course, the US would come to Taiwan's defense. The real difficulty, and I think where a lot of the danger here is, what about all of the steps up until that? So saying you will defend Taiwan, what does that mean for if if the PLA starts flying fighter jets over the island itself? What happens if military exercises are held further and further into Taiwan's territorial? What happens if there are attempts to target the outlying islands? So there is a, there is a lot of very unclear, very ill-defined steps between where we are right now and between an outright um, Chinese invasion. And I think that's where the focus needs to be, less so on on this, you know, the, the question that he keeps being asked and keeps answering. Yes. Well, we will continue to follow this and uh, tune in next time when Katie answers this question, because Biden has once again said the U.S. will defend Taiwan. <laughs> for now, though, Anoush, thank you so much. This was super helpful for, for me. I'm sure it was for our listeners as well. And we really appreciate you making the time. Oh, thanks for having me. I learned a lot as well. Katie, will you get us out of get us out of this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> thanks to all of you who send in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Waji Rajagopalan on India's positioning between Russia, the US and China. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you so much. Please also rate us five stars, not four stars, five stars, and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.